Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm Sean Devlin. And I'm Duncan Stevenson. And welcome to the third episode of The Stride. In today's episode, we will be joined by my head coach, Jack Levitt. Pretty excited about this one, so let's do it. All right, here we go. We would like to welcome on my coach and uh, one of my mentors here, Jack Levitt. He's heading into his fifth year as a head coach at Georgetown Swimming and Diving. He was the 2019 Big East Coach of the Year, formerly the head coach at Caltech and assistant at Harvard, West Point, and NYU. And he was also the 2005 Big East champion in the 100-yard backstroke at Seton Hall. But most importantly, born and raised Bostonian. So we love that here. We love math boys. So Jack, how you doing? Doing all right, guys. Thanks for thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, really excited about you guys getting started with this and, and really being a part of, of it in any way I can. Yeah, yeah, no. We're pumped. Definitely one of the first people that came to our mind when uh, we started this. So we're pumped to have you on. But uh, we'll start off with our first question that we really ask everyone. Um, it's kind of a staple of our podcast. So how do you define leadership? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's tricky, man, right? I think if you asked me that question, you know, at the beginning of my career as an assistant to my stop at Harvard to my first head coaching job to now, you get a different answer along the way. Um, and what I've kind of kind of found is that it's, it's really, really about uh, evolving, right? Leadership evolves, um, and, and it's really about meeting people where they're at. Right. So what what works for, say, you might not work for your teammate um, and, and really just trying to find what motivates people and, and being that being what they need you to be to get the best out of them. Right. So um, adapting, evolving uh, leadership is, is not one size fits all for sure. Um, so uh, I think I've been in different kinds of leaders uh, throughout my career as an assistant and as a head coach, um, probably changed even when I became a father. Um, my, my thought process there kind of shifted uh, in, in my career. So um, I, I'm still learning. If you ask me that question in two years, it's probably different than how I'm going to answer it today. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, the, one of the first things I think about when you say that, um, and Sean, I've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes, has been as we watch the last dance kind of um, things we take from that. And as you said, like kind of what works for one person might not work for another. Um, as you said before, like one thing that stuck out to Sean and I was just like Phil Jackson, like kind of how he dealt with Dennis Rodman, sure. knowing how he needed like a lot of leash while, you know, some other guys, you know, don't get that yeah. same thing. So yeah, yeah that's I a think, great point. I think one of the biggest misconceptions in sports is that everybody's uh, treated equally and that's not true. Um, because you have to have, you, you can't treat everybody the same, right? You, you, you've got to, everybody's coming, especially with professional athletes, college athletes, like everybody's coming from different backgrounds. Everybody's, you know, evolved in their own life to get where they're at then. And there's no way that you can treat everybody the exact same. Um, you can have kind of baseline standards for everybody as to like what this means and, and this is what it means to be a part of this program and these are kind of minimums almost but you can't treat everybody the same it's it's impossible you're not going to be very effective if you do yeah yeah that's a great point especially thinking about the team that I'm on that you helped build just all the different personalities we have 
it really doesn't work that way. You know, with the team that we have and a lot of the teams that I've been on, it you really have to take a unique style to each kid. So yeah, right, yeah. So um, talking about a little bit more about your career, um, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about what the transition was like uh, from your first head coaching job at Caltech uh, to Georgetown, and kind of uh, what was so appealing about the Georgetown job and why? Uh, you yeah, there? yeah, yeah. Um, every job is really different, right? So. You, you know, Sean read off some of the schools I was at before, and, and a lot of them share similar characteristics of really high academic schools with really smart, high-achieving kids. Um, but going from a place like Caltech, which is strictly all math science kids, and it's a really small school. It's, it's like 900 total students, and so our team is really, really small. Um, and we had, like, I think, like 11 girls on the team and, like, 15 guys so so you can you can try some things out there because it's a smaller group and like you know really get to know the kids individually and 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 tailor your message to them when you get to a place like georgetown and we got like 60 something it's always difficult too and you you come into a situation where you didn't recruit anybody there some of them are swimming for the the same guy for a girl for three four years whatever and and now you're a different voice um so you've gotta you, you gotta be conscious of that as well. Uh, but the, the big appeal for a place like Georgetown was, was I'm an East coast guy. I'm a big East guy. Uh, I swam in the big East in my career. Um, and I mentioned before, like I was, I really value, I didn't set out this way when I started coaching. Um, you know, my first coaching job was NYU that led to Harvard, that led to West Point, that led to Caltech, that led to Georgetown. When I didn't start out with the intention of working at all these schools that I couldn't get into as a student. Um, it just kind of happened that way. But when I, when it, when I realized it, when I was at NYU and Harvard, I started to realize that like, Oh, I, I like coaching with, with kids with this perspective, kids that, that really care about what, what we're doing from a swimming perspective, but also um, are really smart, really motivated, really thoughtful outside of that and really analytical, which like challenges you as a coach, which is a good thing. Um, so that to me was really appealing was the, the combination of, of the academics that Georgetown provides and the level of swimming that we're at and being back in the big East, um, which was really important to me. Yeah. That's a pretty sweet, very long journey, but uh, you definitely found the right spot now. I can say that's the life of a coach. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So now that you are the head coach at Georgetown um, and it's the head coach's job to instill a good culture in the program, in your opinion, what are the most important ingredients to building a successful team culture? And it starts with people. It's, it's the thing, like, you can have all the greatest ideas and, and all that in the world, but, like, you have to have the right people there uh, to help support it, right? So I think that starts in, in the staff and the support that you get from your department, right? And that bleeds into your team and then into your recruiting and, and people really believing that what you're saying is true. Right. And, and, uh, and saying that like, you're, you're going out there recruiting kids saying that like, this is the kind of program that we're going to have. Um, and they got to trust that. All right. So it's, it's really about like establishing trust in that relationship that regardless, like there's going to be ups and downs throughout a four year career in college, right? 18 to 22 is pretty, pretty volatile time of your life. Right. So there's going to be ups and downs and, and, and having, uh, your team know that you care about them through those ups and downs, I think is the cornerstone of, uh, of establishing good culture. We always talk about, um, I always say this to every young coach that athletes do not 
care what you know until they know how much you care. I think I stole that from Shaka Smart or somebody before, but it, it makes sense, right? Like you can have all the greatest knowledge in terms of X's and O's and whatever sport you're in, but if, if your team doesn't think that you care about them and their development, then it's not going to land as effectively. Um, so that, that's kind of how I've always established the, the culture, whether it's at Georgetown or Caltech or even before that. I just always wanted my teams to know that I cared um, about who they are and, and what they want to do. Right. Yeah. One thing I love about Georgetown in general is that, and I just got off the phone with our AD Lee Reed the other day in a meeting with um, the student athletic advisory committee. It's really a top down, you know, the leadership yeah. comes from the top down. He sets the tone for the whole department yep. and it helps with uh, our Cooper athletics leadership program, Maya. And then it comes down to the coaches and the coaches really do a great job instilling that culture. And, um, throughout all the athletics and all the sports and it's it's really pretty sweet yeah so you talk about like um the importance of knowing your athletes care and kind of establishing um that personal relationship with them um you know what does that look like what form does that take uh within the course of a season whether it be maybe like weekly meetings um like a council something like that um how yeah. do you what process do you use to instill that value the, the same way that i mentioned before in terms of leadership where it's like it's meeting people where they're at for some people like i might need to go 90 percent of the way there right others i might only need to go 10 percent. so it could be as easy as like uh with somebody like sean really easy to just like talk about something organic about Tom Brady or whatever. Right. And then that leads into a conversation about, you know, his family or whatever, things like that. Right. Or so other people, it might need, it might need to be like, Hey, I want you to come in and let's talk about a, B and C and like really spell it out. So it really depends on the person. Um, but I, I do think that it's, it's important that your, your team knows that you are there to, to talk about whatever it is beyond just swimming. Cause like I, being a swim coach and I imagine being a coach of any sport, um, like the actual coaching piece is the part that we love the most, but it's probably the part that we do the least, right? It, there's, there's so many other hours in the day that we're doing other stuff. Um, and so you've got to make sure that you're like, you're intentional about those conversations that you're having with your team and make sure that like, you know how it can be perceived. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's in a team meeting with the whole men's team, then the whole women's team or the whole team together or just the sprinters or just the distance group. Like you've got to be really intentional with what you're trying to get across and how you're saying it. So um, it can be in team meetings. It can be in, um, you know, just casual conversations on, on the pool deck or at a meter on the bus. Um, you know, we start the year off with one-on-one -on -one meetings with everybody. Uh, and that kind of establishes that. Like I want them to come out of that, especially for freshmen who don't know me as well to come out of that being like, Oh wow. I thought, that we were going to talk about swimming strictly, but we actually talked about my major and, and my family and, and what I like to do outside of this. And just to kind of build that trust from, from there. And, and that started probably in recruiting too, a little bit, depending on the person. If, um, you know, recruiting is, can be awkward. Um, you know, you're talking to 16, 17 year olds and trying to figure out what makes them tick. Not everybody's really all that uh, open during that process. So once you get them on campus, you can kind of delve a little bit deeper, but um, yeah, it's it's not like a, I don't think it's anything special or, or, or proprietary that we do. I just think we just try to continually talk and talk and talk. Yeah. So now that we know 
your kind of ideal culture with what ingredients that you really like in it and uh, the process that it kind of took or didn't take to implement it in. What would you say the turning point at Georgetown was for you when kids started to really buy into who you were as a coach? Because it's, it's hard when you first get there and, you know, there's seniors that have been with this other guy three years, you know, it's hard to get them to buy into who you are and wh- who you are as a coach. So what do you think the turning point was for you? Um, I think in a lot of ways, it, it takes something like difficult to happen in order to, to come out of it and feel like you built something, right? If, if you start off and everything's really, really good, you don't actually know if your culture is very good, right? Like you don't really know until it's tested. So once we had a, uh, you know, we had, my first year went great. Right, there was no issues. It was it was awesome. I, well, I wouldn't say no issues, but it, it was it was pretty good. We had some stuff going on, but the team handled it really really well. Second year didn't go as well, um, and and we met some adversity throughout that year, and and really tested you know where we were at as a program. We were kind of at a crossroads of what we could do uh, as a group, and we could be this kind of team or that kind of team, um, and how we handled that and the the support that we got as a staff from the rest of the team around some pretty difficult decisions that we had to make really showed me that we were on the right track that this was going in in the moment I I recognized it I was like this is a decision this is a 10-year decision right this is not just a a 10-week decision this is a 10-year decision like what we do here will dictate where we are in 10 years Mm -hmm. um and and it worked out really really well and and I think you know, Sean is somebody that reaped the benefits of the classes above him dealing with that adversity and like coming into a program that was already ready made, like really solid culture, really had everybody's back, everybody on the same page, that kind of thing. Like we'll have minor things and, and reminders of people to get back on track and things like that. But that year we, we were all over the map. And, um, and I really think that that was a big turning point for us as a, as a culture. And it was almost like one of those things where the, the line was drawn at that point where I think, Sean, you talked a little bit about this in the past, about like the above the line, below the line kind of stuff, where it was like, yeah. all right, here's the line. Yeah. Like, there's no questions on what the, the attitude needs to be to be above it. And if you're below it, then maybe this isn't something that's for you anymore. Um, and that's, that's a hard diff- like, conversation to have with people. But when you're thinking about, again, not just the 10-week experience, you're thinking about a 10-year experience, um, you want to make sure that you're you're keeping people on your roster that are above that line, uh, and not just keeping people around um, that are below it. Yeah. Right. And when you mention that line, like that kind of goes back to what you said before about how you know everyone may need uh, different treatment based on their personal experiences, but you got to establish that kind of baseline expectation for the entire program. Like at the very least, in some regard, we've already got to be here at or above this line. Yep. Agreed. So. Yeah. Talking about above and below the line really pumps me up, honestly. Me and Duncan kind of learned that a lot about that in high school football from our head coach when we uh, we talked a lot about Urban Meyer and what he does yeah. and um, the above the line book. So it's uh, yeah, it makes sense, right? Because like a lot of your team's gonna sit there in the middle and just like be easily influenced, right? And yeah. they, you want to have more people influence people from the top end than the bottom end. Yeah, and but you're always gonna have different motivations. You got a roster. <laughs> For us, it's almost 60. 
you're going to have, and it's a season that, that spans like seven months, right? You're going to have fluctuations in motivation and that's expected, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's understood that not everybody's going to be at an A plus every single day, right? We talk about that a lot, that like yeah. just give what you have that day. It's a quote that I think it's on my wall in my office. Um, just, you know, do what you can with what you have where you are, right? So it's not going to be A plus every single day, but if your attitude and your effort are there, then, then you're going to turn out okay. Um, so if you have more people that are, that, that are willing to pull people up, then you're going to be all right. That's a really good example of how to take advantage of the lows too, that you were just talking about as well. And kind of, you know, the, the lows are something that can kind of define you as a person and you as a team and how you respond to that is everything. Yeah. So I think that was a really good example and very really good job explaining that. So now that you've been at Georgetown a few years, four years, going into your fifth, um, how do you work to maintain the culture you have built so far, um, especially in collegiate athletics when there's so much roster turnover year to year? Yeah, I think use the right word maintain there because it, it's not something that you achieve and then are done working on, right? It's, it's constantly something that you're maintaining. Um, and I think, you know, once you feel like you've made some steps in the right direction, it's reinforcing that again with the right people that you bring into your program, right? So whether we had a new assistant coach that we added a new one this past year and Megan and, and she was bought into kind of what we represent as a program, meaning, you know, a team that's going to try to win a championship and achieve a ton of success in the water, but also not a detriment of any academics or, you know, mental health or social, st- whatever it is, um, making sure that it's the, the full picture is being supported in our program. Um, and then it's recruiting kids that want that same thing, right? We recruit a lot of kids and, and Georgetown's an attractive place. A lot of people want to, would love to be at Georgetown University, but we got to be really judicious in the people that we bring into our program because, you know, they're going to represent more than just themselves. Um, and we want to make sure that the, the people that really buy into what we're doing from a culture perspective. Yeah. Just college athletics in general, as you just explained, it's a constant battle. You know, if you stop that battle, you know, you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose the recruits. You're going to lose the success. So it's just a constant battle to always get better and stay better. You know? Yeah. I think it's funny. Coaches talk about this a lot where it's like our, our jobs and livelihoods are dependent on the decision-making ability of 18 and 22 year olds. Like that's an insane thing, right? It's, It's not, it's not, uh, a real dependable age bracket, right? When you're thinking <laughs> yeah. about, you know, your job. But I think if you bring in the right people and, and it's clear to them what what is acceptable and what's not, what is above that line and what's below it, then it's pretty easy then. And also, like, if you recruit the right people, it also helps because your team does a really good job of letting you know, like, hey, this person was, is a good fit. This person's not. Um, and we rely on that a lot. We got to a point now in our team where I trust them kind of blindly on that. If our team, if enough guys or girls on our team come up and say, this is the person that we should have on our program and we're, we're recruiting, then like, that's good enough for me. Um, because I think they know what the culture is. They know what the standards are. Um, and, and it makes that, that process a little bit easier because they're going to be themselves a bit more around the team than they are around me. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of trust, a lot of trust going on. Yeah. But uh, so moving on a little bit, kind of to a more personal view in my perspective of the team. Um, 
you have a pretty unique view on your process of elect electing captains. Um, okay. Could you just explain what you do and why you do it this way? Just because it's so different from the traditional way that a lot of other teams use. Yeah. Again, this is something that evolved. I've, I've been a part of teams that have, you know, one captain and it's this big kind of uh, ornate, election process i've been i've gone without captains um and you know when i got here it was different than what it is now and, and how we do it i probably haven't done it the same way for more than three years in my whole career so um it's always something that's a little bit different the way we do it now is we send a questionnaire out to to the whole team um something like 12 or 15 questions and the, and the questions are all about sort of uh, qualities of, of leaders and who on the team do you feel represents these qualities? So um, who communicates the best? Who is most willing to hold each other accountable? Who, um, uh, who balances the, their academics and swimming the, the best? That kind of stuff. Things that, things that make up, um, that are relevant to our program. Um, and they have to list three people. Now, it can be anyone. It can be freshmen, sophomores, juniors on there. It doesn't need to be just juniors going into their senior year to be captains. A couple of reasons for that. So, one, we, we basically tally all that up and, and see who's who's in there the most, um, and and there there are captains. Essentially, it is almost like a vote where it's it's as many times as you answer somebody's name, that's that's kind of a vote that they're getting. But um, what it really helps with us is for the underclassmen. So, you know, let's just use the, the, you know, connects with their teammates or communicates with their teammates the best. Somebody might list, you know, a freshman there. Um, and that's great. So that shows us that that freshman is really effective at getting our message across to the team. So we'll put them in positions as a sophomore and as a junior to help lead and be, be an extension so that they're ready to take that role on when they're a senior. Um, so it, it not only does it help as an effective way for us to, to find out who our captains will be, it also is a good, a good way for us to identify emerging leaders on the team uh, and put them in a good spot. Yeah, I think that's something that's very, very important. Um, just being an underclassman throughout high school and um, particularly in high school and college, it got a little bit easier to do. But I think it is kind of an awkward spot and a hard spot to realize where your leadership style can be used and when it's the right time to kind of step in. So coming from a upperclassman or a coach kind of putting you in that spot really does help them push them in the right direction. It helps the team a lot. Yeah. Right. Um, so obviously we're in this uh, pretty strange time with COVID-19 um, and that is affecting athletics pretty significantly, both professional and collegiate. Um, so as the leader of a program, um, what strategies have you been using to kind of, as we said before, really maintain that culture uh, that you guys have going at Georgetown and kind of keep, keep your team close together and moving in the right direction? Yeah, that, that's been difficult um, because at the beginning, you wanted to just stay connected as much as possible because everybody was really kind of reeling from that and like, pretty disappointed about how things were going. Um, so we, we did some, some big team meetings um, on Zoom, which you quickly learn are not great because you can basically have one person talking and everybody else is listening and, and you have no react, get no reaction. 
So then we started doing smaller grade grade meetings. Um, and then we've got the, these things on our team. Another thing that we do that's part of the captain thing is we have uh, five committees on our team and every junior and senior is a member of that, of, of a certain committee um, that is, you know, in charge of how our team does like community service or helps in the recruiting process or onboarding and things like that. So we started doing those committee meetings as well. And those were good ways to just like have, have a goal, like all right, come together to talk about whatever we're supposed to talk about, but then also just talk about other stuff. Um, so I quickly realized that like our team did not need to have a ton of zoom meetings to talk about everybody's situation and how they were handling it because our team was doing it on their own anyway. Um, they were they were getting together, whether it was by grade or, um, or the whole team, getting together for a workout. That like us adding stuff in there was was gonna be more probably more detrimental than than it would be beneficial. Um, so luckily, I think we had really good leaders on this team, and and they kind of took that role over. Because I always think that whatever you're asking your team to do, if it comes from one of them, it's way more effective than if it's forced from the coaching staff. So like we could definitely get together and be like, Hey guys, we're going to come together. We're going to do like a team, you know, trivia night or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And team probably do it. And yeah, whatever. But like forced fun from a coach is never as effective as like organic, you know, meeting from, uh, from, from the, from the team themselves. So um, I was really happy to see that our team was doing that. And I was just staying in touch with our seniors and then our rising captains, just checking in being like, who, is there anybody that you feel that we need to talk to and reach out to and, and check in on things like that? So we did stuff like that. Um, it was nothing really, uh, you know, there wasn't a formula to it or anything like that. It was more just making sure that no one was falling through the cracks and, and I trusted our, our team leadership to let us know. So uh, we're running out of time here. So we got our last question. It's another staple of the podcast. Yeah. Who is a leader you look up to and why? Oh, man. Um, yeah, I think I knew this one was coming, but it's still hard to, to, to do because it's, it's one of these things where um, a leader that I would have, like, thrived under as an athlete is not, like, who I am as a coach, right? Like, it's, it's yeah. very different. Um, like I would have loved, you know, swimming for a coach that was, you know, expected a lot from me, never, never gave me any sort of like attaboy or anything like that. Like I, I thrived under that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And that's not who I am at all. So it's, it's hard. So there's coaches that I admire that do that stuff really, really well. And I'm like, you know, that, that I'm in awe of how they can do that. And like, I, it motivates me, but like, I know that that's not who I am. So I, I guess I'm, I'm, somebody that's like a much more quiet leader, like a Greg Popovich or somebody like that, that I've always kind of looked up to. That's, that, that definitely takes an individual approach to how they, they manage their teams. Um, the, the biggest influence is, was the coach that I had growing up though, was, which was Kevin Terrell, who's now the, the head coach at Harvard um, with the men's team there. But he was the first coach that I ever really had. Uh, and it was a perfect balance because he had another coach with him named Brian Cameron, who was, Kevin was the guy who was like always asking how, you know, how's mom doing? How's this? How's that? How's school? And Brian was the guy who was like, I don't care. Like, this is what you're supposed to be doing on a day to day basis. Like just get in the water and go. So I had the best of both worlds between those two. And, and Kevin's the guy I still go to, um, you know, when I make any big decision about whatever I'm doing from a personal standpoint or professional. Um, and he's somebody that, 
that really got me into this profession and to think about it the way that I think about it now. Like I said before, like it wasn't an intention of mine to end up at all these schools that, that I didn't have the SAT scores for, but um, Kevin was kind of in the same boat. Kevin, Kevin ended up at Harvard and, and he went there because he really valued what Harvard represents as a university b- before than what he represented as, as a swim program. So Kevin's always been somebody I looked up to because he, he wins at a big, they, they were top 10 in the country in, in NCAAs two years ago or last year, I should say. Um, and, and never sacrifices anything else on the, on the personal development side or the academic side. Like he's really done a good job of, of keeping all that stuff parallel, um, which is really hard to do. So I've always kind of tried to look up to him and, and emulate that. Yeah. Kevin's a great guy. I got to swim under him a little bit this past summer and um, yeah, everything you said is right on with that. Yeah. So that's pretty sweet. So, but that's all the time we have. Um, really appreciate you coming on. This was an awesome interview. I think um, this was really fun to do. So yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, have a good one. Good luck in quarantine. I'll see you soon. Peace. Too. Thanks, guys. <laughs> wow. So that was a great interview. I learned a lot, probably more than Sean because Sean was familiar with a lot of things he was talking about being in the program. But I mean, a ton of the things he was talking about. Um, are applicable to a lot of different facets of life, not just an athletic team. Uh, so a lot to learn there. Sean, what's something that stuck out to you? Yeah, just talking to him, a lot of what he was talking about in culture is all the conversations he really has with his athletes and his athletic department. And it just led us to kind of show that the communication that he has really builds the trust that they need to make that culture thrive. And um, that was really a big standout part of it. Right. Yeah. Just the more communication, the better. Um, Tries to talk to his athletes as much as possible, whether that be about uh, swimming, their classes, their family, just anything. The more you get to know, in his opinion, the more he gets to know his athletes, uh, you know, the better his program will run. Um, One thing he said to me that is really memorable, uh, I think he said this almost verbatim, was that the biggest misconception in sports is equal treatment. Um, and that all your athletes should be treated the same. And he talked about how, you know, everyone's coming from different backgrounds. So everyone requires something different, Um, you know, and that's a theme of this podcast so far has been leadership takes many forms. So he was talking about like, you got to meet people where they're at. Um, Maybe someone needs more leash than someone else. Um, Go a little easier on them, harder on someone else. But how like having baseline standards for a program are great. but not everyone is or should be treated equally. Yeah. And kind of keeping in tabs with that is kind of the culture that is built is a constant battle. And it, you know, there's no right answer to anything like treating people differently or things like that. It's always a constant battle to be better, to have a better culture. And if you stop that battle, you're kind of screwed. So that was another thing. Yeah. I mean, it's constantly evolving. It's not like, you can rest on your laurels and say last year, you know, our culture was good. Um, we, we worked well as a team. You got to continue that into next year and really continue those methods, keep that communication up. Um, yeah. And then also like, you don't really know your culture until it's tested until you have to go through a low or two. And that's really when you'll see, all right, is this something with, is what we have in place here strong enough to get us through uh, challenges that we will inevitably face. Um, and so in his opinion, that's when, he really knew that at Georgetown he had built something 
um, that was successful at the time and hopefully could be in the future. Um, so yeah, uh, that kind of wraps up what we have for you guys today. Don't forget to follow our Twitter and Instagram pages at the stride pod. I'm Sean Devlin and I'm Duncan Stevenson. We really appreciate you guys listening and uh, continuing to listen to our podcast, but as always, we are the stride. Thank you.